So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, for our teaching today. Palm Sunday, so we're skipping ahead. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark, but we're jumping ahead to the triumphal entry passage when Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, which is the week in which he was crucified. And uh, all of the Gospel writers in the New Testament include an account of the triumphal entry. The crowds seem very welcoming and excited about Jesus coming in, ready to crown him as the true Messiah, the King of Israel. Um, and within five days, they are in one voice ready to kill him. It's a very startling uh, <clears throat> series of events, and very fast series of events, where they go from uh, welcoming him as their king to wanting him dead. And it wasn't because they misunderstood him uh, that they made this transition. It's because they finally came to actually understand him. Once they realized what he was really saying and intending, once he was describing the kind of help he thought they needed, uh, he was intolerable to them. And they were ready for him to be dead. The question I want you to think about as we read this passage and think through it some is just this. If people thought of Jesus the way you think of Jesus, who would want to kill him? Like, if people thought of him the way you think of him, who would want to kill him? Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please uh, come and open our hearts and minds to you as we listen to your word. We're here because uh, we need you and we want to know you, and so we pray that you would come meet with us and speak to us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So some of you who are close social observers may have noticed that we experienced some tribalization uh, and polarization in our culture. It's subtle, but if you look for it, you'll notice it. Um, not totally unique to us, the people who are gathered in Jerusalem for Holy Week, for the Passover, were a mix of people, too, that didn't get along well. Not only did you have the hated Roman occupiers who were there, but you also had some zealots who were, you know, hyper-nationalists who... Uh, really thought everyone else was insufficiently patriotic and zealous. You had religious conservatives like the Pharisees. You had religious liberals like the Sadducees. 
you had pragmatist business people and whatever else you would expect to be in the mix all there. People who don't agree about anything hardly, people who don't watch the same TV news, you know, people who just look at each other suspiciously and as the other. And by the end of the week, though, they found one thing that they could all unite behind. All of the different tribes, all of the different uh, groups could get together behind the Give Us Barabbas campaign. When they were offered uh, to have Jesus crucified and Barabbas, the criminal, freed, all of these groups together chose Barabbas. They all wanted Jesus dead. Which is a striking thing. Right? Um, especially because most of those groups, on, in some conception of it, they wanted a Messiah and were expecting one. Right? They were hoping... And it seemed to, apparently there's a lot of buzz at that time in Jerusalem about the expectations for the Messiah to come. They all wanted that. They're all hoping for that. They wanted, one, a political rescue from Tiberius Caesar, get out from under the Roman thumb. And then they wanted a religious rescue, too. You know, they needed to be vindicated that, that what they'd been believing and saying all along was right. And, you know, they needed probably some reform morally and spiritually and hope that the Messiah would bring that too. But they didn't want this kind of Messiah. Once they figured out what kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be, they had no use for him. Because he didn't come just to overthrow Tiberius, he came to overthrow them. Right? Uh, he, he's coming to conquer them, not just their enemies. And he didn't come to congratulate them spiritually for holding the line so long and so well. Uh, he came to die for them as if they needed that which is really kind of an insulting thing to say that someone needs. And so people lost their enthusiasm pretty quickly for Jesus, uh, which really, like us, if you pay close attention to what Jesus is saying, you realize that he's an offensive character, and um, he's not easy to welcome and embrace. Uh, his presence in our lives is really challenging and difficult for us if we pay attention. You know, if you come to Christian faith like this, you think, I'm an okay person. You know, I think I'm better than most, maybe. At least I try hard. I've got a good heart. Um, I could use a little help in my life. I could probably use a moral boost and a boost to my spirituality. I could use some help, you know, for him to sponsor my career a little bit or maybe sponsor my love life or something like that. I could use help from Jesus, and that would be nice to have. But I'm okay. When he comes, like that New Testament passage we read, like the rider on the white horse with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, um, and he comes making these drastic claims as a king, then we start to recoil a little bit and say, this is a little too, too drastic for me. Um, I'm not sure I can go all in on what the Jews here called the coming kingdom of our father David. I mean, that sounds fine and all, but, you know, I've never really seen this kingdom that supposedly exists and is going to you know, be the new earth eventually when Jesus finishes fixing the world, but that's pretty ethereal and not tangible. And I've kind of crafted together a bird-in-the-hand life now that I'm not really willing to give completely up on. If Jesus wants to come help me make that go better, that would be good, but... 
Like for me to just sell everything and be all in on this kingdom that he's bringing, it's a pretty drastic way to believe and a pretty drastic way to live. And should cause you some pause and some cost counting as you think about the claims that he makes as he comes in as our king. So, uh, I want to talk about why Jesus is the wrong kind of Messiah in any normal person's mind uh, by saying, one, he's the wrong kind of king, and second, that he's the wrong kind of priest. Because both of those things are part of what he was coming to do. So first, he's the wrong kind of king. I don't know how easily you listen when we do the New and Old Testament readings, but the Old Testament reading we changed to Psalm 118. Uh, that's the psalm that people were singing, basically, uh, when they're singing in verse 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalm 118, which is a, it's a song about the coronation of the king coming into Jerusalem to be crowned. And the king is singing, you know, open the gates to me, the gates of righteousness that I may come in. And the people are singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like, that's the scene. And that's what they figured was going on when Jesus comes in. He's on a donkey which is a strange thing, but you may remember that Solomon, David's son, when he was uh, to be coronated as king and anointed as king, he rode on David's colt in to be anointed. And so the echoes are there for people. They're saying, oh, I get what's going on here. Um, this is the greater David that's coming, the king we've waited for for so many years. This is him. So they're singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We think this is the Messiah. This is the one who's coming. But the thing they didn't mention when they were singing, or it's not recorded in the song, is uh, that right after they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the psalm says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that's like a clue that your expectation about the Messiah isn't exactly right. The stone the builders rejected. That is, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, is going to be the cornerstone rejected by Israel, rejected by His people, and rejected by the leaders. Uh, he's going to be the cornerstone. And they're going to be shocked by this and surprised by this. Because uh, He's prickly. And you tend to trip over Him when you really listen to what He's saying. You know, they wanted the revolution against Tiberius and the Romans, so here comes the King into Jerusalem. And he goes to attack the Roman garrison, right? No, he goes and attacks the temple. Mark makes less of that than the other gospel writers do. When Jesus goes in to the temple, that's when he turns the tables over and attacks the temple and says, I've come to set this right because this is not right. In other words, saying, I've not come just to vindicate you. I've come to conquer you because you need conquering. Um, I've come to take you off the throne of your life uh, and to put myself back in the rightful place in your life. And, of course, that's very threatening. You know, he didn't come to, to fix those people who are messing up our country. You know, he didn't come to fix the fundies or the religious liberals. He didn't come to fix the Republicans or the Democrats and, you know, all they're doing to mess things up. He came and said, hey, my perception of the problem with the world is that it's you. It's not them. It's not the people who watch the other channels. <laughs> It's you. And who wants to hear that? Who wants to hear that you're the problem that needs fixing? It's almost like Jesus, a politician uh, who uh, ended a speech 
instead of saying at the end of his speech, God bless you and God bless the United States of America. But he ended his speech saying, God bless you and may God have mercy on the United States of America. Those sound a little different, don't they? You're like, yeah, huh. <laughs> what do you mean by that? May God have mercy on you. Because that's really kind of what Jesus came to say. Not just God bless you, but God have mercy on you because you need for God to have mercy on you. Everything is not okay with you and God. That's why I'm here, to make things okay between you and God. But apart from me, it's not okay. And so that's what he comes saying as a king, and it's not fine with people. If he wanted to help you with your job, to have more success, to help you with your worries about money or your marriage or something, something, something he came so that he could help you get your life together, well, you'd be fine with That would be great to have Jesus' help to get my life together. Because in that scenario, I'm still in charge of my life. I still set the agenda. I still set the terms. And I'm happy to have Jesus' help. But that isn't the deal that we are offered by Him. Uh, He comes to be the King, not to serve the King. (laughs) He comes to be the King and requires me to abdicate the throne of my life, which is very um, hard to take. He's come to liberate me from my ruinous self-rule. And I'm like, I I wouldn't say ruinous. (laughs) I mean, I've got problems. But I'm not that much a mess. Uh, But through the eyes of Jesus, you you say, oh, yes, I am much of a mess. Uh, I need this kind of help. So you go from getting Jesus to sponsor your agenda to realizing, no, I'm more like the person who owns the donkey in this story. It's like, the Lord has need of it. No more explanation than that. My life now kind of goes under that rubric. The Lord has need of it. Whatever He needs, whatever He wants, that's the agenda now. And um, that's a lot to swallow. That's signing a blank contract at the bottom and saying, here, Lord, (laughs) you can have this wherever, whatever, however much. Um, That's just a lot to swallow, right? It's a lot to take. It's a lot to expect of people. And most of the people who figured out that's what he was saying didn't warn up for it. They said, no, we don't want that kind of a king. Uh, I don't want to lose control of my dreams for my children. I don't want my connection to my country to be relativized by my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't want my idea about how much money I need and want uh, to be under His control. I don't want those things. I've got to do certain things to make sure my life goes okay. Then if He wants to help, that's fine. But He can't be the King in that way. The thing is, though, that there's nobody else that can give us what He gives us. We need Him to be our King. right? Our self-rule is ruinous in our lives. Uh, Nobody else can reconnect us to God. Nobody else can give us endless grace where everything that's broken in us is not only forgiven, but set on a path of healing by Jesus. No one else can bring us to our true home, to what our hearts have always longed for, that Jesus promises to do. Uh, So it's good that He's the King. He's a better King than you are, uh, but it's hard to let somebody else be the King. So it's tough to surrender to Him. Uh, They didn't want a kind of a king. They said, give us Barabbas. They also didn't want the kind of priest that Jesus was coming to be uh, when they figured that out. Back to Psalm 118, the song they were singing. 
See, this is where you wish you brought your Bible to church. You can flip back over there and see. Because, because I think my version and your version say something different, Melissa. It was, it was a, a strand of the passage I really wanted to highlight. It sounded different. And I may just, miss, may just have misheard it. But when they're singing about uh, come and save us and rescue us, uh, they sing this because they're going into Jerusalem to the temple. They sing, um, bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar, which was a part of the, uh, the normal celebration to have the sacrifices for sin as they go into the temple in Jerusalem. But this coronation passage about the new king says, bind the festal offering uh, to the horns of the altar. How does that even fit in? It feels like a, a strange juxtaposition there. But Jesus is coming as king to sacrifice himself to die for our sins. And that's a big part of what he's doing coming into Jerusalem. And that's why, see, in some of the accounts of the triumphal entry, that while everybody else is cheering and throwing the palm branches and their cloaks down in front of him and saying, Hosanna, blessed, see who comes in the name of the Lord. When it finally turns the camera sort of back to Jesus and uh, what he's doing, he's crying. Right, he's weeping when everyone else is celebrating his coronation because his heart is broken over Jerusalem. Um, and his heart is broken over what lies before him. What he has to do as our priest to reconcile us to God. And that's going to the cross. So they wanted a Messiah for religious reform, inspiration, spirituality, moral improvement, you know, uh, better doctrine so everybody agrees with me finally. And, you know, all the things you want Jesus to fix in the world like that religiously. But they didn't really. Um, Expect him to come and say, you're so morally and spiritually broken that for you to be reconciled to God requires the death of the Holy Son of God in your shed. And that was the message he was bringing. And they sort of started figuring out that's what he was saying. And nobody could stand that. I mean, how do you tell the people who are God's own people on earth, you know, these are the, these are the Jews themselves, God's chosen people, most of whom are very religiously observant. They showed up in Jerusalem for Passover, which is like, like going on a retreat, you know, where you feel really good and spiritual and you're trying to retreat or something. You're like, you're giving extra effort. And he comes and says, uh, your religiosity mostly works against you with me, not for you. It's, it's creating self-congratulation for you. It's not helping you uh, understand your need for me very much. Um, the things you're most proud of are actually some of your biggest problems with God uh, because they're the things that make you think you don't need a Savior like me when you really, really do. And the more he explained that, the more people turned against him. You know, you come to Jesus and you sort of think, I'm, he's going to help me get nicer. And hopefully he will a little. But he's after a whole lot more than just making you a little nicer. A little more generous or something like that. I mean, he's out to transform you from the inside out. And that's good news, really, except what it means is his diagnosis of you is that you're not fixable. You don't just need improvement. You need to be made new. So when the New Testament writers start talking about becoming a Christian, they talk about it as like a new birth, like being born for a second time because we had to scrap the first project and start over because we're such a mess. It's very radical, you know. Sort of like going to get a wart removed and having the doctor get out a defibrillator. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa. 
just need these warts removed. Thank you very much. Uh, the doctor says, no, no. <laughs> Your problem's run way deeper. That's what Jesus said to people. He said, you're all charity cases. Morally. Spiritually. Charity cases. Who wants to hear that? And when we come to church and we say, yeah, God's grace can change anybody. There's hope for anybody. If there's hope for me, there's hope for you. And that sounds good. But the corollary of it is, there's no hope for you except in the grace of Jesus. Like, it's amazing that Jesus' grace can change you. That you can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. But it's insulting to realize that only through Jesus can this happen. That apart from the death of the Holy Son of God on your behalf, there's not hope for you. And when the rider on the white horse comes, he comes only as a threat to you instead of as your champion. We all abjectly need God's grace. And nobody wants a Messiah like that. We don't want a priest like that. We want someone to make us nicer. And he wants to make us new. So, when people figured out what he was saying, they said, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. This is not the kind of religion we want to sign up for. Basically, he just he eliminates a third option of, of liking him or admiring him. You either crown him as king in your life or you want to kill him. But if you found some middle, comfortable third ground where you admire and like Jesus, you're just not paying attention to who he is. Because nobody who figured out who he was liked him. <laughs> they didn't like him. They crowned him or they wanted to kill him. And the idea is if, if we're seeing clearly and paying attention to what Jesus came to say and do, that we're going to be pushed out to one of those options as well, to crown him or kill him. Um, if you've kind of construed Jesus just to be the purveyor of traditional values and good common sense, you're not listening. Uh, you, should, you should read through the Gospel of Mark and realize how stunning the things that he says are and how dramatic the claims that he makes are. So I asked you at the beginning, like, given how you think about Jesus, if other people understood that, would they want to kill him or not? And for most of us, most of the time, I would kind of guess no, uh, because we tend to domesticate him a little bit. Most of us want a Hazel Moats kind of religion. You know who Hazel Moats is? No, because that's if you if you went to public school in Georgia, you would know who Hazel Moats is because it's it's a Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood, that they made us all read uh, to our great benefit. I know the women's group read Revelation, my favorite. Flannery O'Connor short story this week. It was good, wasn't it? Someone nodded. It was good. <laughs> well, in Wise Blood, there's Hazel Motes, who's kind of an anti-preacher preacher. And he starts a church called The Church of God Without Jesus Christ Crucified. Flannery O'Connor draws in stark uh, pictures. The Church of God Without Jesus Christ Crucified where nobody sheds blood and there's no redemption because there ain't no sin to redeem and what's dead stays that way. And it's a caricature, but what he's saying is all of us pretty much want a religion that gives us morals and inspiration, a sense of community, maybe a political mascot, uh, but doesn't require us to abdicate the throne of our lives. Doesn't require us to need God's grace alone. Uh, to have any hope with him. 
We all want the church of God without Jesus Christ crucified. And uh, Jesus has no room for that, obviously, and of course, uh, because he's the only place we can get the help we really need. We need this wrong kind of Messiah. We need a king who comes to conquer us. And we need a priest who comes to lay down his life for us. Now let's pray. Father, you know how hard it was for people in the first century to get their minds around what Jesus was saying and doing, and you know how difficult it is for us. And we ask for your help, that you would have mercy on us, that you would give us uh, courage and faith in your Son that would allow us to step off the throne of our lives. We love you. We believe we need you. We trust your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, but faith is hard for us. So come help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.